This is a Main Hustle Media Podcast. Welcome to Militantly Mixed, the podcast about race and identity from the mixed race perspective. I am your host, Charmaine, aka Mixed Girl Maine. And when we last spoke for episode 17, The Mixed Blob with Caitlin, I had mentioned that I was going to be taking a week off from Militantly Mixed because I had been um, invited to speak at Sierra College in Rockland, California at their Pride event on the topic of intersectional identity. And also that we were making a transition from Maine Hustle Media in which Militantly Mixed, the Black as Fuck edition, was now going to become blurred comics and we were going to switch the airing dates of the show so militantly mixed the show that you are subscribed to and listen to on a regular basis thank you for that is now going to tuesdays effective november 13th and blurred comics is going to start airing on thursday effective november 8th i'm excited about the things that are happening on militantly mixed i'm excited about the things that are happening for blurred comics i'm excited about black radical queer and my girl javia and just as as far as main hustle media is concerned right now I'm very happy with where we are and it is at least a manageable workload for me now that I've had to go back into an office and punch a clock during the day to pay the bills but I'm enjoying that new job even though I don't love that I have to work for another human but I'm still getting to do all of this and I'm just really happy right now being a person that suffers from depression when you get these bursts of joy or whatever you just gonna I, I feel the need to get it on tape so that I can even listen back to my own voice in some of my darker times to see that yeah you were happy for this. So I want to talk to you a little bit before we go into today's episode because my feelings are still fresh. The event, the speaking engagement that I had took place yesterday. I just flew in to Los Angeles today to come back home. So I'm still riding the high. I'm in editing mode and I'm just I'm just having feelings that I want to share with you all. So for my regular listeners for Militantly Mixed, this is not going to be a regular Militantly Mixed episode. This is, I'm going to share with you an edited down version of my speaking engagement from yesterday so that you can hear a little bit about what we talked about. For those of you who listen to the show that are used to me talking exclusively, almost exclusively about mixed raceness, that is a very big part of this talk. But because it was about intersectional identity, I also dealt with my sexual orientation, my romantic orientation, my belief system, my nationality, uh, my gender identity, things like that. And so you're going to hear a way more about me if you listen to this episode than you normally do. You 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 some of the stories might be repeats from things that I've shared on the show, but this was an audience that wasn't familiar with me, so I had to kind of go back and, and establish those that origin story for them. The title of the talk was Identity is Intersectional, a Mixed Race, Bisexual, Polyamorous, Atheist, American Woman's Perspective. So we really dealt throughout the conversation about intersectional identity through me as a way of explaining what it's like to live an intersectional life. And I had actually had something way more planned at the time that I was leading into the engagement but about a couple days beforehand it felt too academic or too rehearsed I guess and not natural which is not my style as you can hear on my show I don't have a whole lot of prepared questions for for my guests I really want to talk naturally about their mixed race experience because I want the truth to really come out and if it's too programmed in advance I think you miss some of that and so I chucked my 
planned thing and I just started talking and the crowd got involved and they asked questions and they were very engaged and receptive and I was very transparent there really I don't believe there was any questions somebody asked me that I didn't respond to because that's not really my style either so yeah I think overall the event went really well I know that when we do things we tend to be our own worst critics and so there was things that I was really concerned about while I was in the process of doing it I felt like I was bouncing around a lot and that I wasn't really kind of sticking with the theme I was nervous in the beginning because this is the first time in my life I've ever had to perform in front of an audience in anything that I'm doing that I was that was so personal it had to go well I used to be a a dancer a performance dancer like hip-hop and uh, modern dance and things like that and most of those things were choreographed by other people so even though I was dancing my heart out and I was really passionate back then I never it was never mine I the only time I felt that great about it was when I had choreographed something that uh, we performed in front of an audience. Uh, So that was more personal. It meant more to me. Uh, That was when I was 15. (laughs) Uh, All these years later, you know, I've I've been in front of a crowd many times for different things, whether it's been, you know, doing some sort of performance, like a comedy thing or whatever, or uh, speaking in front of a crowd in a a corporate environment. Uh, It was never so personal that it mattered if it went really well. And this was the first time that I was in front of a crowd who was there to see specifically me because they wanted to hear about my intersexual identity and so it had to go well. It was really intense for me and I'm not prone to nervousness and I'm not prone to embarrassment. Uh, In fact I rarely ever find myself actually embarrassed. Usually when I use the word I embarrass, I use it in the way that I understand people use it the way, you know, (laughs) that you would just have to try to, like this will make people comfortable if I explain it this way but I really don't actually get embarrassed ever. And so we get going and we start talking and it's going it's going great although there's some nervousness I had to shake out a little bit and I have a personal relationship with Johnny Terry who was the organizer of the event so there's a lot of engagement between he and I. The students ask very personal questions and I do answer them and it, it, the, the whole time people were very engaged and following me around you know as I kind of shifted my weight or moved around their faces were following with me so I there was no point at which I felt like I lost the crowd which was great and the responses that I got afterwards for the people that came up and talked to me after um, for the pe- for the people that talked to Johnny and then he told me later uh, it was an entirely positive event I don't know how that's possible I talked about some very taboo things I talked about atheism I talked about polyamory I talked about a bisexual identity I talked about race and and I talked about it all at one time and I said things that may not be popular in some cases but they were part of my own identity and at no point throughout this entire event did I ever feel that I had lost the crowd or that I had angered anybody. Everybody that was there was there because they were open. And that was great. It was a great experience. I... I would have addressed anything where someone had some negativity if it had happened, but it just didn't happen, which is a carryover from the show. We've been active now, what, four months, and I have yet to receive a negative response. Um, no hate mail or bad or bad tweets or anything like that. Almost everybody has been on board with what we're doing if they, if they take the time to reach out. Friends and family have given me decent reviews, and, you know, you want to take those with a grain of salt because they're people who know you, but, but the people who know me who listen to the show have given giving me some really genuine and and constructively critical reviews of what what we're doing here so I feel really good about it. I feel good about Militantly Mix. I feel good about the speaking engagement and the bug has 
bit. I have said for the longest time that I wanted to become professionally mixed race and I wanted to start getting out on stages and talking about mixed race identity and and even an extension of the rest of my intersectional identity as well. Uh, it's something I've always wanted to to do and I was going to try to use the podcast to sort of propel me in that direction. And this being my first opportunity to, to do something like this, to have a speaking engagement to talk about identity, I just want to do it all the time now. <laughs> Uh, I've already been sort of tentatively invited back to future events at the at the uh, Sierra College Pride event and and so, you know, I'm ready to do that again. It was so much fun. The people were great. Everybody was very thoughtful uh, around the whole thing. I'm so grateful to have had that experience. And more than that, I'm grateful to have had that experience through someone who I've known for so long, Johnny Terry. And a friend of mine came to to watch me as well, someone who lived in the area, my friend Michelle. Uh, two people I have not seen in, in real life. I haven't physically seen them in about 12 to 15 years. And, you know, they were there to support me and, and help helped me grow my my passion my my business everything like that it was amazing i i just i'm i'm still just a day later i'm so overwhelmed by the joy that that this event gave me even though i was the one speaking i got so much out of it that i just um i have to rearrange some things in my in my view of myself um not that I, I have a low self-esteem thing about it or, or doubt about myself. I, I don't doubt what I talk about. This stuff is so a big part of my life that I feel as expert level as you can feel if you're not academic about it. You know, it's, it's my own experience I, and I talk about it so frequently. I would say that I'm an expert about this kind of intersectional identity. I live this stuff. But to be able to share it with other people in a way that makes sense to them and, and that they receive it with an open mind and open heart and things like that, that's the part that I didn't know if I was quite capable capable of. And so far, it seems to be the case that that is working, which I'm very excited about and I'm very proud about. But also I'm shocked because at the end of the day, I'm still Charmaine, this one in seven billion people on this planet. So why would anybody care, you know? But the fact that people do care and the fact that people are still listening or sharing it with people or inviting me to come speak places, that's the thing that is, it's just life-changing. Uh, it's just life-changing. I don't, I don't know what else to say. So, damn, when I, I did it again, I got back up to like 10, 12 minutes uh, in my intro. I've been trying to cut those down, but there's no way. And if you're still listening to the show, you must like it anyway. So I'm going to keep being me. Uh, so yeah, my regular audience, this, like I said, is not going to be your typical militantly mixed episode. It is going to be very personal about me. It is going to cover topics that you're not used to me talking about on the show. My sexual identity, my romantic identity, my re- non-religiousness, things like that. Uh, if those are topics that make you uncomfortable, skip to next week. We'll be back with a regular episode. But I encourage you to listen because it may expose you something to... Um, it, it may clear up some things, some bad ideas you might have about some of these things. It may, it may give you some information about something you might be curious about. Uh, once we got into polyamory, the whole crowd broke open. They started asking very personal questions. They were really interested. And it's because this topic is so taboo and not many people talk about it publicly, I, I was an ambassador for it. Not in a way where I'm trying to convert the world to polyamory, but I'm trying to at least convert the world to be comfortable with us existing and not to be threatened by our presence. Uh, and that was the experience that I had at this show. So we do talk quite a bit about polyamory on this episode. Uh, we talk a little bit about my atheism and my view of my own gender, which is filtered through my view of my race and stuff like that. And so I know that people who listen to this show are probably prepared for it. Although 
my white audience, it would be probably eye-opening in terms of like how a woman of color views herself as a woman versus how a white woman views themselves. So yeah, we talk about this stuff. It, it doesn't get dirty though. It doesn't get mean. It doesn't get ugly. It's just matter of fact, straightforward. Here's what it's like type of stuff. So I do hope you enjoy the episode. Afterwards, please hit me up on social media. Let me know what you thought. I'm looking for constructive criticism because if I am going to blossom into this public speaking space, I want to get better. I want to get stronger. So send your thoughts to me. That'll be really helpful. You can email me at Charmaine at MilitantlyMixed.com. And that is S as in Sam, H-A-R, M as in Mary, A, N as in Nancy, E, at MilitantlyMixed.com. And as always, you can follow us on our social media platforms, Militantly Mixed, uh, on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. It's all the same. And be prepared that going forward, you will now always get your episodes on Tuesdays rather than Thursdays. If you're subscribed to the show, you don't have to do any anything different the subscription i'll just load the episodes when they're available and you will still get them if you're not currently subscribed but you do listen please subscribe rate and review the show it does help us get higher on the list so that people can view us and jump over i guarantee you there's a mixed race person in your life that needs this to need needs to hear other mixed race people talking about mixedness they'll want that visibility they need that visibility but they just don't have access to it so please share it with your mixed race friends share it with your monoracial white friends and your monoracial black friends, your monoracial Asian friends, your monoracial Latinx friends, because we do talk about things that cross all ethnicities, but then show you a different side when it comes to being a hybrid of some sort. So please continue to share the show. Help us get our numbers up. I think now that I've had the experience that I've had this last week with the public speaking engagement and just in hindsight of, of reviewing all of the emails and tech and tweets and things like that that I've received since we started the show in July, there is something here that is absolutely needed. And I don't believe and I have not been able to find anything quite like it. And I know I'm talking about my own thing, my own creation, but it is legit. For years, I have scoured the internet to try to find a mixed race space that was quite like this. Um, there are some mixed race spaces out there. Uh, there's all different types of things. We've even talked to some, some folks on the show that have mixed race organizations and all of those spaces are important and great and I want to be involved in all of those as well. But to date, I have yet to find something that on a regular basis just talks about our experience and lays down an oral history of what it's like to be mixed so that hopefully in the future, mixed race people will have access to this and know that we were here and we were making marks even as the main society doesn't really acknowledge us that often. Hopefully we end that. Hopefully the militantly mixed militia or whatever we are going to end up being grows so big that, that we can start forcing visibility and representation in all platforms. But until that time happens, share this podcast with your friends and family. Tell them that even if they're not mixed or if it's not their type of thing, that they will learn something about how, if anything, just how to engage with other people that are different from you. That's the big thing about this show that I think is the most meaningful, or at least it's the thing. It's a mix bag. The mixed race people write me about visibility and, and feeling seen. The monoracial people write me about what they didn't know they were doing wrong, quotation fingers, towards mixed race people or people of color. Those are the two important aspects of the show. I hope you're sharing it so that people get open to that. And I will go into 
the recording of Identity is Intersectional talk. Mind you, I set up a microphone. I set my recording device up right next to me so you can pick me up very clearly, but I do tap the podium on occasion and you hear like jarring knocks and stuff like that. Unfortunately, I can't cut that out because I'm also talking. So we just have to, we're just going to have to move past that. But a mistake in hindsight that I, that I made was that I didn't restate the questions that were asked in the audience so that everybody can hear. Uh, Some of the questions you can hear because people are closer to me than others. For those that you can't hear, you can, you can glean from my answer. Um, But if there's any point of confusion and you want to ask me about it, hit me up. I'm, I'm the person who's going to email you back if you email the show. So I think that's it. I think that's good. We don't have to go into the normal business of the podcast. You, you all know that we're fan sponsored and you can get to us through PayPal or Patreon if you feel inclined to sponsor the show. If you went to the event and you listened to the to me speak and then you decided to listen to the show, thank you for, for coming on board. Stick around till next week so that you can start hearing the way the show normally goes or go back and listen to some of our older episodes. We've got great episodes with amazing guests and I appreciate everybody that came out to see me at uh, Sierra College. It meant so much. I don't normally get emotional but I have been very emotional about and even right now just thinking about it I'm getting a little bit choked up so without further ado we're gonna go switch it on over to Identity is Intersectional a mixed race, bisexual, polyamorous, atheist, American woman's perspective. Hi everyone, it's time for us to get started. Thank you for attending this Pride Days presentation and I am so excited, I can't tell you, I'm so excited to be able to introduce uh, our next speaker. Uh, when I was first hired at the college, we had TV uh, classes and I had one guy in my class who was, his first paper he wrote for me was in rap language and he had a really tight perm. Uh, that was and then did he did. He had a tight that? perm. I think I've got pictures. No, still. I remember the perm, but I don't remember. <laughs> so then um, the woman who videotaped my show, uh, my TV show, it was a class, but it was on TV, was Charmaine Johnson. And so now, all these years later, I, Johnny Terry, the LGBT studies faculty and the chair of the Spectrum Committee, am introducing to you Charmaine Johnson, who is the celebrity of today, <laughs> who is speaking. And Spectrum went to, uh, we've been talking to her for a while about getting her up here. We're hoping to bring her back. We've already been talking to some other groups about having her record one of her mixed race podcasts up here. Uh, Coming up soon, so we're going to invite her back up. But I'd like to introduce, and you're going to have to help me with how we build you. Uh, Charmaine is a mixed race, bisexual, polyamorous, atheist, American woman who likes cats and also knits. (laughs) So everyone can come to this presentation. So Charmaine Johnson. Thank you. Hello, thank you for having me. I I had something kind of planned out for this and then I thought about it a little bit more and it didn't really feel super comfortable. So what I'd like to do is be pretty casual about how I go about it and I'll just sort of talk about intersectional identity through my own personal identity. So hopefully it's not too much of a narcissistic journey, but I hope that after the end of it, 
you'll come away with some a little bit of understanding of your own internal diversity, accepting your own internal diversity, and then using that to be sort of more open to to other people and, and whatever their deal is. So I'll start out with the way I describe myself, especially in social media, is that I'm, I'm black, Japanese, Caucasian, British, German, Irish, bisexual, hyphenate, polyamorous, atheist, American woman. My, my identity is very hierarchical. I'm a kind of person that I need a hierarchy to sort of put things into place, whether it's at my house or, or in my life. And so it's not an accident that I kind of describe myself in this laundry list of ways. I describe myself that way because of it's what I feel like I identify with most. So I say that I'm black first because my father is black and half Caucasian British. My mother is Japanese, German, Irish. Both of my grandmothers are Korean War era war brides. My Japanese grandma was picked up by a white guy and brought to the States. My British Caucasian grandmother was picked up by a black dude and brought over to the States. But so I have a very war bride family mentality or whatever. We're both multi-generational Americans and second-generation Americans at the same time, so we're American foreigners in our family. And so my upbringing is primarily black. I grew up in black neighborhoods. I lived in Long Beach on the border of Compton. And then I, if I was with my Japanese grandma, I was Japanese, and I was only Japanese at home, black everywhere else. When I did stay with my British grandmother, who lived with us for a period of time, she was just a person that would sit in a prominent chair in the room, and you'd go up to her, and you'd say, hi, Nana, and she'd say, give me a kiss, and you'd kiss her, and then that was pretty much the extent of, of Nana. So I do feel that I identify more as a black woman and then as a Japanese woman. And then I have a dark sense of humor, like a dry sense of humor like British. And I drink tea. That's about the extent of my Britishness. And then my German-Irish, I don't know those people. All I know is that my granddad was German-Irish Appalachian folk, probably inbred. But other than that, I don't know anything about them. So I can't really identify that way, but I don't leave it out of my laundry list because I want to make sure that I'm listing out my identity. And then my next set of identity is a hyphenated bisexual polyamorous two things that I can't really divorce from each other bisexuality was something that took me forever to come out of actually I had my my very first crush on a girl when I was 14 and I didn't realize I had a crush on her I thought I wanted to look like her because she looked blacker than I did she had what we refer to the good hair and I wanted to look just like her but and then I started waking up having fantasies about her and I got all kind of confused because I didn't know that you were allowed to be bisexual I didn't even know that lesbians were a thing we grew up around a whole bunch of gay men never saw a lesbian my whole life didn't know lesbians existed till I was like 16 years old and so I had all these issues with trying to figure out why I thought about girls and I also thought about boys and things like that and it made it seem like relationships were going to be impossible how do you how are you monogamous if you think about girls when you're dating a boy and when you think about boys when you're dating a girl it made no sense to me and then I learned about openness not poly necessarily but I learned about openness which just basically said like yeah we can be committed relationship but we can have sex with other people. Tried that out. That didn't quite work. Polyamory started to make sense. You could love multiple people. And so that's why I have the hyphenate when I don't have a comma between my bisexuality and my polyamory. And then my next deck is, is atheist. It's important for me to list it as part of my identity because it helps guard off people that will bless me or pray for me. It I can tell them I'm an atheist and hopefully that means they won't offer me their prayers. <laughs> Even at my wedding, remember we told everybody to make sure that they, whatever their deity was their thing and let us have our day without without having to deal with that. And so, so yeah, it's a very much part of my identity. I, I, I learned that I did not believe in any deity when I was seven years old. My dad handed me a little 
children's Bible, told me to read it because it was the truth. He had just become a born again. I read it, didn't believe it, handed it back to him, told him it's not possible. This is true. And the rest of my uh, life with my father was him trying to beat Jesus into me. And that didn't quite take. And then my next thing is the American. I can't really divorce myself from America because I was born here and half of my family is from here. I don't have any other cultural experience outside of the United States. So it is still a part of it. And even though things are kind of going crazy in our country right now, I'm still proud that I was born here or lucky that I was born here compared to someplace else that I could have been born. And way down at the bottom of the list, I, I list myself as a woman. I do not know why. Uh, my womanness is so far down my identity list, but I can't be just a woman. White women can be just women, but we women of color cannot be just a woman. So I put it lower down because my the way things happen to me happen through my of colorness and then happens through my sexuality and my polyamory and things like that. So I, I have it way down on the list, but beyond that, I can't really explain why I don't identify as a woman first. It doesn't really make sense to me to, to do that. And then, yeah, I like to knit. I read comic books and I'm a podcaster. So those are those are my that's my hierarchical identity. But I'm using I'm explaining all that to you to kind of ex, to kind of show how crazy identity is. Like it's the weirdest thing that we assign ourselves. We decide from a very early age that we're supposed to be a thing. And you're supposed to wave that flag for whatever that thing is really hard. You're just black, black power. But, you know, you gravitate towards something. You're gay. You got to wave that rainbow flag. You're, you're, sh- you're straight. I don't know what flag you wave. I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what you wave, but you wave a flag for whatever your identity is. Hmm? The rainbow flag. Yeah, well, I guess you could do that too. <laughs> uh, but you just have to. L- <laughs> hmm? Yeah, there you go. So you re- you get forced into having to wave a flag for whatever your thing is, and you're not really allowed to be anything else. If you're if you're black, you're black. If you're white, you're white. But you get to be a white man or a white woman, I guess. I don't know. There's a lot of flexibility where, where whiteness is concerned, and that's something that kind of affects me as half colonist in my blood. I get stressed out about whiteness a lot, which is why I talk about it on my show. So I have I have three shows. I produce three shows. One is Militantly Mixed. It's about mixed race identity from mixed race people's experiences. I talk to a guest every week and we talk about what it was like growing up as a child as mixed. And then we go into what it's like adulting as a mixed race person. And then whatever issue or subject matter that's kind of really affecting them as it relates to their, their race comes up and we kind of talk about it. And through that, it's a mix of creating like an oral history of mixedness, which is just something that doesn't exist. I mean, uh, as on the black side, we barely have our history, right? We were stolen from Africa, our, our culture, our language, everything was taken from us. Some of us are lucky enough to find out where we came from, where we were stolen from. But even then, we're never going to really be a part of those communities. I recently did a DNA test. I found out that my black side of the family comes from three different tribes in Gabon. One is the uh, Tike, the Sogo, and the Kota. Um, but that's all I know. I have no connection to Africa besides the fact that I took a DNA test and it told me where I might come from. It's going to be up to me now to do research to try to connect back to my ancestors and back to my people. And that's not fair. <laughs> it's not something that we as people of color deserve to have happened to us. We can't trace ourselves back. If we're lucky, we get to a plantation. If we're lucky, we get to a slave ship. If we're lucky, we get to where on the West Coast they were picked up from. And that's it. When it comes to any other type of identity, you're kind of stuck. You just have to be one thing. And if you're growing up a mixed kid, how do you do this? 
If you're growing up a, kid, a queer kid with straight parents, how do you do this? You know, there's types of identity that really mess up a child. And when you're already going through identity crisis, just trying to figure out if you're the cool kid, a nerd, or a jock, and then you have to att attach to it, I think I might be gay. I think I might be bisexual. You know, I'm black, but I look white, or I'm whatever I look like. I usually get Filipino or Mexican or Dominican or Puerto Rican, depending on what side of the country I'm at. If you're never seen for what you identify as, it makes things very difficult for you to maneuver, to maneuver your own identity. And it, this is something that has rested on me for many, many years, and I've tackled it, tackled it as much as I can so that now at 40 years old, I host a post podcast where I can talk about mixed race identity, or I also am the producer off of Black Radical Queer, which is a podcast about blackness and queerness from a radical perspective. And we dive into what makes us what we are and allow ourselves to be intersectional. A, telling our stories on our own terms. Mixed race people finally getting a chance to lay a blueprint so that years later someone can come back and say, oh, I didn't realize mixed people were doing that kind of stuff. Things that we don't know that we kind of find out later on, like Warren G. Harding was black or mixed with black at least. We find that out and it's a footnote in history now. But imagine if me as a little mixed girl reading that there was a mixed race president back when some of my people couldn't even vote. Like that would have been an amazing piece of history that could have helped encourage me and understand that I exist. That's a problem with a lot of people that have intersectional identity is that we don't think we exist because we're so weird. And so that's one of the things that I like to talk a lot about when it comes to identity is how weird it is and how it's okay to feel uncomfortable while you're trying to figure out who the fuck you are. So I wanted to start through by talking about a sort of my racial identity because that's the thing I'm most grounded in. And I know that we're, we're at a, a pride event and I'll get to to us too, but the racial side is a part that I'm more grounded in, and it, it allows me to explain my feelings about intersectional identity a little bit better. How many people here are familiar with the term code switching? Um, so it's mostly people of color who know this term. There's only a couple of white folks that, that raise their hand to it. So code switching is the thing of where you perform the way a person is most comfortable. You perform something in front of them. So if you're in the corporate environment, I'm a person of color. I call it my Becky voice. When I'm in the uh, corporate environment, I'm in a suit. I've got my, my white girl voice, my Becky voice. I talk proper English. I don't catch an attitude. I, I don't, you know, show my emotion or whatever. I'm basically a robot because I can't be the woman of color or the queer woman acting a fool in the corporate environment. That's code switching. My, the person I am right now in front of you is probably closest to how I am, except that I'm a little bit nervous. And so you, as we go on, you're going to see me be a little bit black. You're going to see me be a little bit queer, whatever. It's going to, it's going to jump around. But code switching is an active thing that you're having to do. If I shake a, per, a white person's hands, I'm shaking their hand a particularly strong way because it's important for me to know that they're not dominating me. Something my dad taught me. When you shake a white person's hand, you shake them harder than you do when you shake a person of color's hand. That was just a, a way we were raised. It's a defense mechanism. When I'm with my Japanese grandmother, I'm very demure. I'm, I'm almost bowing in respect of her generation as the matriarch of our family. There's not, a, there's not a thing she could ask for that I'm not the one jumping up first to get. I also slow down the way I talk, and I talk a lot softer when I talk to her. But then I can turn around and talk to my brother with all kind of smack and then come right back and be right back to... Japanese granddaughter for my grandma. If I'm in a black environment, 
and I'm seen. Most black people can see me coming a mile away. I don't have to tell anybody I'm black. Most of you in this room, I have to tell I'm black, but I know there's a few people that notice me as soon as they walked in. We, we, I, I say smell our own kind. We instantly feel a sense of connection because we know that we come from something traumatic. Um, how many people know about the term one drop rule? <laughs> I would hope so. I would hope more people know about the one drop rule. So the one drop rule is something that comes to us from Jim Crow time. It's a way that white people in power were identifying any of us who had even a hint of black in us. Even if you presented white, you were meant to check off black so that you could be barred from voting, barred from certain opportunities, you know, easier to jail. Et cetera, et cetera. And it's a thing that even though white people gave it to us, we have sort of adopted it to a certain extent in, in terms of like joining the family of black people whenever we come around each other. So someone sees me, it's just a, a question of being part of the family. This is not something that happens with white people. I'm half white. I'm 54% white. I have never once in my life ever been accepted as white. I've always been asked where I'm from. I've always been told, you're so exotic looking, but where are you really from? No, but where were you born? No, but where, what country do you come from? America, America, America. And it never matters because I have whatever color yellowy brown skin that I have. All of this is very motivating to get me to try to help talk to other people about identity because nobody did it for me. And I was searching for my tribe. I knew I could tribe up with black folks. I can never do it with white people. And it's with that in mind that I'm really motivated to talk about this. You had something back there? Yeah, I was just curious because you identify as black and Japanese. Uh, did you ever get people um, feel that you have to All the time. Yeah, you get so it's a it's a mixed bag, and and this is my experience. What I'm going to talk about, I'm not I'm not going to lay a blanket thing for general. Black people will almost always allow me to be black with them. I have rarely ever in any occasion had a black person be like, but you're not really black. And maybe they might say it might not be as hard for me, but they'll still welcome me as black. If I say I'm black and Japanese. Black people might go, yeah, but you're black, right? That kind of stuff happens. I'm never, I'm never put down by black people for wanting to choose the other stuff. They acknowledge that there's other things in my blood, and they acknowledge that even to a certain extent, there's there's extra trauma in my blood because I'm half white. Uh, Japanese people don't want me to claim J Japanese. In in fact, we have a a, f a saying which I it's really a weird translation, but it's basically like it's so cute or it's so sad that you think you're Japanese because they are very um, self-contained ethnic group and culturally very contained. They um, they don't really like outsiders. Even my grandmother, who is Japanese, full-blown Japanese, born in Japan, she left the country in late 50s. To go back now, she's no longer Japanese. She's left the fold. So even though she's ethnically Japanese, she's no longer Japanese as far as they're concerned. So if I go up to Japanese people and I say I'm Japanese, they're going to they're gonna say, don't you want to claim whatever other things you've got going on? Because they're a little bit more separatist. And then on the white side, never once. It's always like, oh, that's interesting. But what about the black? What about the Japanese? So I do tend to identify more as a black Japanese person, but really more than anything, I'm a black person. I just happen to be a little pale. Going back to, or I guess separating a little bit from race, since we are talking about um, bisexual identity. My polyamory comes from my bisexuality. I can never divorce it to. I know I said that earlier. Basically, when I was finally accepted of the fact that I was attracted to women, I stumbled into a relationship with a married couple. And it was really, I wasn't attracted to either of them. It was an opportunity. I had been waiting around to, to find some woman to finally date or whatever, and it just didn't happen. And I was still very secretive about it with my own family. 
family because it was the 90s. We were still kind of, it was a lot harder still then to come out. And so I, I found this, this couple through a class group that I was in and we started a relationship. It lasted about six months. And during the course of that time, it made me realize that like monogamy was going to be almost impossible. If I'm always thinking about a woman when I'm with a man, a man with a woman, then I'm going to have to deny myself half of who I am just to be in a relationship and just be in a long-term relationship. And then like seven months later, I fell in love with my best friend. And so I had to figure out, oh great, I'm, I'm in this relationship with somebody that I love intensely and I don't want to break up, but I'm also wanting to, to, to date women too. He was also a virgin when we got together, so I was afraid he would want to break up with me just so that he can have sex with other people. And sex seemed like the stupidest reason to break up. I know we still break up over sex all the time, but to me it seemed like the stupidest reason to break up because if you love someone and you put in that work and you put in that foundation, why would you break up over sex? Now, let me be clear, cheating because a person shows you who they are when they do stuff like that. But if you're open about it and you, t you tell people in advance, look, I'm attracted to this person, we're both interested, I would like to pursue that and you lay out your comfort zones with each other then that kind of stuff makes sense to me but I I understood that long before I understood that polyamory was a thing so Johnny you mentioned before that you wanted to, to talk you, you wanted to have a talk about polyamory what was there anything in particular with students that, that they had questions about do you guys have questions about poly and I don't mind it so if you do want to if you do want to ask questions feel free to just chime in um, I don't know if I got it wrong, but did you say that you got married? Yeah, I'm married to a man. Um, and how, I guess, ignorance on my part, how does that work with with polyamory, it's it's about honesty and, and upfrontness. Uh, we don't engage in any other kind of romantic or even sexual relationships unless we have a test up front. I need to see the paper, even if it's his partner's or whatever. He doesn't restrict me from my sexuality. You know, it, it, it's it's one of those things like, you know, I'm not going to be the man that's going to fulfill all your needs. I'm not going to be, I certainly can't fulfill your, your woman needs, things like that. Um, so why would I restrict you from being able to do that? On the flip side, he has kinks that I don't have. And because I've known him since I was 15, if he even tried to pull that shit on me, it would make me giggle because like I would never be able to take it serious where he is concerned. So I need him to be able to explore that with someone else and, and take the pressure off of me to have to perform that I'm interested in it. And it's a, to me, I think of it as a very loving thing to do for your partner to allow them to explore those things that they are either too shy to explore with you or maybe you guys aren't the right fit for it. So like my husband and I, there's a lot of areas in our sexuality together where we're not compatible, but we're compatible in our loving relationship and our friendship and things like that. Not that sex can't be fulfilling, but it doesn't check off all these boxes that he has. It doesn't check off all these boxes that I have. So I want to, I want to pull two things together that you're talking about to see, it, just to make it clear. So when you're talking about colonizing, um, I dated a guy for a while that was trans. I started off like as a woman, mm -hmm. transitioned to be a man. Um, and he was absolutely anti-monogamous. He was absolutely polyamorous, always open relationships. Uh, and I finally had to turn around and say explicitly to him, I'm not out to claim your body for the queen. It's not 
<laughs> it is still your body to do with what you will. Right. And that doesn't affect my relationship with you at all. Right. So that's sort of what you've got. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, um, and we mess up all the time. I, I'm, I'm a lot more upfront about things. I put everything on front street. You know, I don't, I don't really, I'm, I'm pretty transparent about everything that I'm, that I'm into or what I'm not into and things like that. Um, it takes him a minute before he's comfortable telling me because he thinks I'm going to judge him, which I probably will. And he thinks I'm going to hate it, which I probably will. And he thinks I'm going to hate her, which I probably will. Not because I'm a woman hater or anything like that. It's just he has a type. <laughs> he just has a type. Um, and so, and so, yeah, we, we use this opportunity to be even what to me feels like even more loving because you're giving your partner the opportunity to explore something that is very meaningful to them. With my husband, if it's someone where we're not dating someone together, we have dated together before. If it's someone we're not dating together, I want to know her. I want to be friendly with her, not necessarily friends, because I want her to feel responsible for me. I want her to feel responsible for my sexual health. Don't go fucking around without telling anybody. Get your tests, be protected, etc. And I'm going to do that for my partner's partners also. I don't want I don't want to mess around where that that kind of stuff is concerned. The other part of me knowing the other partners that's important is that they understand my place. Again, with the hierarchy, when you've been together with someone for 18 years, it's really hard for, you know, someone new to step in and, and try to be an equal. We tried that once with a shared partner and it was a disaster because we, we shared bank accounts. We got, we put ourselves on leases. We went all in lesbian U-Haul style. Two months in, boom, let's do it. Big mistake. <laughs> Four months later, it falls apart and we have to separate everything again. And that taught me that I let go of my hierarchy. And because I did, I open myself up to a little bit of stupidity. So it's not always perfect, it's, but it is something where you can be really loving and, and, and stuff with your partner. In fact, there's even a, a concept called compersion that polyamorous people experience where you feel a sense of love or a wash of love witnessing your, your partner in love with somebody else. It happened to me once. Uh, it happens to him all the time. I guess I'm a little, it takes me longer to, to be excited about, about other people or whatever. So it's a weird little sense that we talk about in poly. It's just this feeling that you get when you see someone in love that makes it happy. It's just like when you're watching a movie and you see people in love and you're like, oh, it's like that, except for the person you love, loves somebody <laughs> else. But I've never been, I don't wave the rainbow flag really hard. And so it's not always evident unless I'm in a relationship that I'm with, a, with you know, with another partner or thing like that. Um, the biggest problem that we get, especially being poly, is that I get to, like, I'm the hook that brings the women home. That's the stereotype that gets put on me quite a bit. Like, I'm, like, my husband's just waiting for me to bring home another woman and he could just have this great ass life. He just so happens not to be one of those straight men that really get off on the two woman thing. He understands his limitations as a man. I don't know why people think they can handle two at one. Almost always difficult. It's not that he wouldn't enjoy it when it's available and things like that, but he's not the person who's going out searching for it. And so a lot of times when we when we are in a shared situation with the with a female partner, either I will stand in the middle or the female partner will stand in the middle so that he is not viewed as the focus of that triad situation where he's not super lucky because he's got two women um, because we were getting it so often and it's really gross when people think that when they come up to you and they're like this is so hot you're so lucky they're always congratulating him 
It's so, oh, Johnny, it sucks. <laughs> They're always congratulating him when we're together with a, when we had um, our shared girlfriend. And he would turn and be like, but what about them? They also have two partners, too. And they're like, yeah, but one's a dude, and that just sucks because of that straight male gaze. Uh, so I get Fleck a little bit. Um, but once people get to know me and they see how I talk, it becomes pretty obvious. Like, I'm pretty 50-50 down, down the pipe in terms of my level of attraction. In fact, the way I describe myself, honestly, which is too long to add to my laundry list, is that I'm heteromantic and homosexual. I, I prefer relationships with men, romantic relationships. Not that they're not sexual, but as I'm, I'm more comfortable then. Uh, romantic relationships with women with me is very difficult. <laughs> At least it hasn't worked out yet. And so I, I am more sexually attracted to women and I'm more romantically attracted to men. So that's why it works out that way. I'm a new mom. So I'm curious as to do you have any children? Mm -mm. This is a child free zone. <laughs> I'm just wondering how okay. you know maybe negotiate these I have I have a bunch of friends that are like this. Um, so some friends will keep it totally separate, which is a little bit hard when it's polyamory versus open. Because with open, you you can say the the boundary is a sexual boundary, and you're not a part of my life. Uh, with poly, you're kind of automatically expected to like family up and that's really crazy to do right away like you in my opinion because I, I mean I don't have kids I wouldn't want to incorporate my partners with my children because I don't know if there's going to be a rotation out because the thing about poly is that because you're not restrictive a person can vanish from your polycule is what they call it and for a while and then maybe come back and you didn't end on bad terms so it's okay for them to come back but the child who now knows this person has now suffered a loss. So like in my perspective, if I were going to have kids, I would avoid that. So I have friends that are like that. They, they, don't, enter, they don't fuse their children unless they're actually going to commit harder like a marriage. Um, and some people do have a ceremony or something like that where they, where they family up like that. What gets dodgy there, though, is sometimes the partner without kids ends up being like a, like a non-paid babysitter. And that's when Polly falls apart. And you hear it a lot with Polly families. Another thing is that there's actually a neighborhood in I think it's North Carolina but there's a couple of places where this popped up where it's like a gated community of poly families so that the kids can all grow up together and like understand poly um, so it's a, it's a really mixed bag most of my friends with kids don't share the children until a commitment is in place of some sort and it's usually some sort of legally binding thing if it's not a marriage then it's some sort of what do they call that palimony agreement type of thing where it's a non what did they do before marriage equality older people adopted younger people <laughs> Oh, that's right. They did, right? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so it's usually something like that where there's some sort of, of legal binding. But I would say, like, if you're in the beginning of exploring it, then you almost have to go the sexual route before you go the romantic route because the romantic stuff that they call it new uh, new relationship energy and poly is so intense, like infatuation is intense, but it's, it's, it's like times 10 when you're poly because you also get some kind of a joy out of your partner knowing that you're with somebody and everybody's happy for you. So it's like insane, intense infatuation and that's how that's how people end up u-hauling too quickly um so if you're starting that part i would i would go sex first and boundaries from family so i'm taking it that you don't want children oh no okay does your husband no what if he changes his mind would you would it that would be problematic for me because we've been together so long. And if he decides he's fallen in love with someone who's willing to have children with him, I would probably be out on that because I legit don't want kids. Like, it's not even, it's not a, it's, it's not like a, oh, maybe. It's like a no. Yeah. I don't mind being an aunt. 
<laughs> but I don't want them around. Um, you mentioned that there was a time when you uh, were not really out about your sexuality, and then everything is on the table. And I'm curious that what, what happened inside of you from transitioning from this one part it was a really big fight in my Japanese side of the family. My Japanese, so Japanese culturally will cut you out of their life, and it's it is never like a, oh you'll you'll work it out eventually. We we are done when we are done, and um, I. My family wasn't too keen on my position, like in terms of the hierarchy, this is where I get it from the Japanese side. My my mom is a black sheep, so she disappeared, and so I had to step up into the child of my granddaughter, my grandmother type of role, and I was supposed to be the one that stayed home and took care of my family, but I fell in love, I wanted to move out in an apartment, and so it put a strain on our relationship, and then eventually, and I don't know why, but um, I was actually house-sitting for Johnny, and when I came back, my, uh, my door was locked my key to change and I still to this day have no idea why I'm not a part of that family anymore um it's okay though it doesn't bother me because I move on but that made me realize how much I hid about myself and I still got you know like I hid a bunch of stuff from my Japanese family just to be a part of the family I didn't tell my my cousins we were black even though they asked us all the time why we were so brown at, at summertime you know I didn't you know like I did all of the things I hid my blackness I I hid my my bisexuality I performed and behaved as I was supposed to don't know what went down between my my aunt and I she was the new matriarch um, but when she closed that door I started living out loud. Everything. Um, I told all my cousins I was black. So yeah, I lived out loud. At that point, I started telling people. It was a little bit slower, but I, I was outed at the dinner um, at Johnny's house. We had a, gosh, who was there? It was like Janine and a couple other students of yours, I think. And I weren't a couple at this time, but he just said, yeah, Charmaine's bisexual or something like that. And I was like, whoa, because he knew I was involved with my first woman at the time, but he didn't know I wasn't telling anybody but him. <laughs> So he totally out out of me, and that's that's when I started living out to friends, but not to family. And then at that point, after but after the thing with my my aunts, my Japanese side of the family, I told everybody, including my my, my mother, which she always claimed she knew. She thought was gay and that he was my beard all that time. What was the story you wanted me to tell? Uh, it was with the question with whether night we were twins about the uh, April Fool's Day. Oh, yeah. So I left my... Don't ever leave your email unlocked. I left my email unlocked and this was like probably two years after we got married or something like that and my husband got into my email and e mass emailed a bunch of people in my um, my box that I was pregnant on April Fool's Day and I was at a movie I think I was watching Dream Girls by myself at the movie theater and Johnny is blowing up my phone leaving me voicemails because he knows I don't want kids and he was like Charmaine oh my gosh this news is crazy we're gonna figure it out don't do anything dr drastic. Like, get get on the phone. Call me and let's work this out. And I, so I come out of the theater and I have like, I said I want it. Yeah, I think you did. You're like, you're like, you have options. We have room. Like, there was a whole thing. And I look at my phone and it's just like a bunch of people who I barely talked to because he didn't know who to email. He didn't know who was my friends and who. 
it was like some professional relationships that got this. Like that's a whole, it was a whole thing. There was one, the most embarrassing of them though, was I was, um, I was working as a, as a script reader at a film festival and a kid I was helping, a 17 year old kid that I was helping with his screenplay emails me like, whoa, I know you're helping me, but this seems like we shouldn't be having this conversation. I'm 17. And I was like, I, it, that, that was rough. <laughs> so I have to go back and explain and then apologize and all that. That was, that was terrible. But yeah, Johnny was basically agreeing to take on my, uh, my unborn stressed child. And uh, I remember from your wedding, uh, and this is the gender difference. No one said anything about not wanting kids, but it was either your mom or mom who was there. And oh, kept God. telling me, oh, she'll change her mind. My mom knew from the day, from the jump. When I was a little girl, I so I shared a bedroom. I didn't even know I was a girl. I shared a bedroom with my two boy cousins and my brother till I was 10. And then my boy cousins moved out and it was me and my brother till I was 15. I had no, and I only had uncles. I had like one aunt on each side of the family. So I always did the boy things. I had no idea I was a girl really until, until um, boys started to notice me. And that's when I, that's when I noticed myself. And, but when I was little and we'd play house, I'd make my boy cousins. Cousin, the oldest boy cousin be the dad and then my brother and his brother be the babies and then I was the dad who had my invisible briefcase and I would play around the corner by myself so that I didn't have to raise the kids. I was six. <laughs> I was like six or seven. I never wanted them. He actually had a, um, an in-home daycare, which is why he doesn't want to have kids. He's basically raised kids most of his life as well. So we're on the same page about it. Um, and he's never faltered on it, thank goodness. And I mean... How do you navigate your family, like your, your mom and your dad? And like... About the pot, like being out, living out. Uh, Well, my dad died years before, but that was good because it was abusive. Um, So he never knew about that. But my mom, she accused me of being gay a couple times. Like, I know you're gay. I know you're not telling me about it. I know your beard. And I don't know what her deal was because she was totally fine with gay men. She loved being around gay. She was a hairstylist. She loved it. But lesbians always kind of wigged her out until she got a really close friend that was a lesbian. That changed everything. I... It was because of that I finally felt comfortable to tell her. I mean, I was I was basically living out loud, except for where she was concerned, till she got that friend. And that, you know, I remember my mom saying something stupid to me like, you know, they're just like us. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, are they? <laughs> Um, she still like the first questions though was when I told her finally was like but do I really like boys or did I just marry Tristan because I was trying to hide but then she would see us together and she's like no there's no way that you guys aren't a thing like you're definitely a thing she did ask me how's it work she was the person who made me not know that lesbians were a thing she would do this that the see it doesn't work thing she would do that to me and I'd be like oh I guess I guess it doesn't work you know I had no idea that there was other <laughs> other ways to do things until I was older but, but yeah like after a while, I basically just was flat out about it. She didn't like the poly stuff because she'd been in relationships where she was always cheated on. I would explain how different this was from cheating. But then she would, she'd say like, oh, I know, I know you're fine with this, but you know, so-and-so cheated on me or whatever. I was like, I'm not fine with it, you know? But yeah, so she didn't ever quite get it. And then when I, when we partnered up with, with a shared girlfriend and she moved in, I'd called to let her know, like, this is about to happen. So if, I'm telling you, because if you come into my house, she is equal to us and you know, you're not put you're not going to put her out because you know you're coming to visit and things like that but um but now it's fine it's pretty easy people just know and they know i'll cut them if they aren't accepting 
I would have, yeah. Yeah, we actually, we did introduce her to my husband's family because we moved across country together and she came with us. And his parents are hardcore Christians in Oklahoma, so it was really weird for them. And But they're, you know, they're the Kool-Aid house type parents. They're the kinds that everybody came over to, to eat and hang out and stuff like that. So they were always welcoming. They were really nice to her and everything like that. But then they took me to dinner separate from both my husband and her. And they, and they were just like, well, the dad didn't say anything, but the mom was just like, what is happening with you guys? You know, they they have no concept of how you can balance this kind of a relationship because, you know, their their Bible tells them it doesn't work, which is weird because there's a lot of polyamory in the Bible. Or at least polygamy. <laughs> um, but yeah, well, we, we would tell people. We're, we're tightly open about it. I did lose a cousin over it, though, because they did, they wanted to know why I was telling, why I bothered to tell them. I was like, because this is my life, and if you come to visit me, you're going to experience that. And they were like, well, could they stay away? And I'm like, nope. I'm like, but you can. And that was pretty much <laughs> Because I think, again, with identity, like, once you, once you are who you are, like, once you're finally out there and you're comfortable, and mind you, identity is flexible. You're always adding things and subtracting things. But when you feel really grounded, when those moments you feel really grounded, if people aren't accepting of it, it's really hard to maintain. Like, I, I, I preach the cut the toxicity out of your life type of thing. And so for me, to have a person who's really that not, uh, not accepting, someone who's going to vote against my interests, how do I maintain that kind of relationship? How do I how do I feel loved by them if they're going to vote to pull my reproductive rights? How do I feel loved by them if they're going to tell me to move my girlfriend out while they come to visit? You know, things like that. For me, it's a cut, and I'll be fine in a couple months. It really only takes me a couple months to get over it. <laughs> I didn't go see my dad when he died, and he's my dad, so cut. <laughs> it's that. It, for me, it was that easy. <laughs> Do you feel any pressure in, so when the three of you were together, did you feel any pressure from people outside the three of you looking at you like, this ain't gonna work? Yeah, I got we got a couple of it, and and that was tough because we're in the middle of that new relationship energy, and you're all excited, and you're just like this is gonna work forever, and then you know people reveal they're crazy to you after a couple months, you know, and then you realize you're not it's not working, and then the stuff your friends were telling you, you're just like I I really need them not to be right, like there's certain friends who were you know saying this is gonna fall apart that I really needed to not be right, and they were right and. So yeah, that was that that sucked. But they weren't so against it that it was a cut. It was more of just like, a, are you sure? I'm thinking of you. I want you to be safe. I want you to be protected. Um, and given that we've had some trouble where it comes to these other relationships, there was people who were concerned about that kind of stuff too. Now it's not that big of a deal, I think. So I'm sure you've got this question before. Do you ever get jealous or like? Oh yeah, weird things trigger my jealousy. Um, so you know, we're not naturally monogamous, but we've society has like been really strong about programming it into us and that's why we we look around and all that other kind of stuff for me jealousy is triggered when I'm left out of the truth so like if y'all want to go in the other room right now and it's you just want you two time that's fine but don't ask me to go to the store and then I come home and I'm like did you really just want me gone like just tell me and I'll make that space like so that's the kind of stuff that would make me jealous weird weird little things like that like um uh there's times when they would be in the same room as me and they would text each other as part of their little knowing that they were talking to each other while I was there that drove me nuts and I was like I know what you guys are doing how do you think how do you expect me to feel about this like I'm completely left out that's not cool so I get jealous where that kind of stuff is concerned almost all of them 
And it's really because of his type. I try to be, you know, whatever, but there was one I did like and actually one that I partnered up with briefly myself. But um, yeah, mostly it's his type. <laughs> He's going to hate that I'm recording this. <laughs> uh, I just want to thank you for your candidness and sharing your story. Sure. But my question to you is, is type filter or find people who are comfortable with this polyamory? Oh, it's, oh, sorry, it sucks. It's so hard. Even in the internet age where you think, oh, here's a group, a community. Poly is so different for all different types of things. And here's another part of uh, intersectional identity. Most poly, when you hear about it, is white hippie types that commune up. Um, swingers or something? Swingers is another one. Oh, people assume that we're swingers a lot of time, you know, things like that. I've been offered people's wives or, or he's been offered people's wives if, he can, if they can have a crack at me and all this stuff. W- weird stuff that I'm not into but other people are and that's totally cool but so yeah like that's a big majority so I can't join that group because I have nothing I can't relate to those types of people I jo- I joined a black and poly group because they were closer to my my tribe you know basically um, but the group in particular that I joined was very anti-triad which is what it's called when you have three partners together that are all together they were very anti-triad and because of that it was really hard to stay in it because you got the main guy telling everybody triads don't work and like this handful of people like but it's working for us and you know so I dropped out of that one too um, in terms of dating there's some polyamory website there's like polyamory matchmaker and stuff like that which is how we met our our ex um, but it's you know it's hit or miss it's just like it's just like a tinder swipe or anything like that it's you might be compatible sexually but you won't be compatible personality wise or romantically you know whatever so it's a crapshoot but you tend to find people accidentally that you're just talking and you don't realize some of your friends are actually doing this stuff and then someone finally mentions it and then it comes out so it's turned out over several years that I've had tons of friends that were in some form of openness that it took me being transparent to make them feel comfortable to talk about it so I mean I don't know but from this room you'll probably have quite a few people that have it and there aren't talking about it yet and then you'll have some that are that do are doing it and then and they'll talk about it it's just a mixed bag so two things one we do have people on campus who are employed here who are in polyamorous relationships and we had to fly someone in to talk about it mm. so that's number one because it is hard it's it's hard to maneuver it's like not accepted but number two so is the reason that someone would be anti-triad because they are hierarchical hierarchical with regards to primary partner and then yeah that's so there's this there's this idea which i hate this terminology was called unicorn hunting where a couple goes out and looks for a hot bisexual babe to join your thing and so you just because you happen to already be a primary couple you're accused of unicorn hunting and that's not our motivation at all we just want someone to live in our house and hang out with us but but so there's a lot of women that get kind of like trained to be like a third where they're they're sort of impressionable and younger or something like that maybe a little more immature so you can get them while they're young and you can kind of coax them into the kind of partner you want and then when it's not working out you just wash your hands of her and then she's out there on the streets no partners and the primary unit stay together and so a lot of people hear about this because it happens a lot and so that's why they end up being anti-triad if if a triad is not like that and everything's on the up and up then the problem is with equality because like in our case what we learn 
learned, we, you know, we thought we were being approaching it well. We were talking about equality. We were putting, adding her to things to make her feel even. But at the end of the day, anybody who knew us for a long period of time, remember the blah, 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 blah. She's left out, you know, or uh, she, she went into an appointment with him at his new job to talk about health insurance, in which I was going to be the one that was on his health insurance, not her. Um, you know, things like that, that remind people that they're no longer even, you know, no longer equal. And, and so that's why people become very anti-triad. I like the idea of being with a solo poly person. And solo poly is um, a, someone who doesn't like to partner up or they don't like to primary up. They will, they'll have their partners or they'll come in, they'll have their own space. You might share a house and they have their own room when they come in when they want to, or they live somewhere else and they come in as part of the, the group. That that type of relationship makes the most sense to me now that I've had the experience that I've had with the triad in the house. But it's, again, it's really hard. Did you have a question? I know. Okay. <laughs> All right, so... So I have a question about just, like, the non-sexual part of the family part. I mean, even with one partner, sometimes you just, like, um, arguments flare up between the two people. It's like, fine, I'm not talking to you for, like, three minutes. Just don't even look at me. Yeah. Or for three days, you know, depending on how extreme. With three involved, that's got to be sort of a difficult dance. It could be at times. But when we moved from Boston to California, we we had a three-bedroom house at the time we had designated locations that was like this is my space I just this like so do I have rules about how to resolve arguments between two of you or something so that, that was where things broke down like um, she would moderate really well between he and I but because she was also part of the problem the moderation was kind of weird and they they were so weirdly in sync that they never they very rarely had an issue and if they did have an issue they would roll it into their kink and that's how they would work that stuff out so I was never a part of that stuff and then when she and I had conflict he would squat up with her and that's why things got as tough as it did towards the end is because I didn't feel like I had any like I felt like nobody had my back and but I was the one taking care of everything so um so that that got tough um we did almost break up over it and then we didn't and so she left um they still talk on occasion and try to make it work but for me if they were to get back together would probably be the end of us if if they wanted to do that. Did you have a question? There were just a couple questions that kind of got answered, but I was just curious, like, if you're, you know, with your, your spouse, and then, you know, they come to Sunday, they do, they try to, you know, if you guys are having a spat or something like that, then they, you know, take the sides or something like that. Like, how does that work, you know? Or do they just no, I mean, it happens. We're humans. We're going to do weird stuff. And, and for someone who's trying to oust a partner, if that if that what goes down, I think it plays to their advantage if they can kind of needle and instigate and things like that. And also another question that kind of I was thinking about, does it ever concern you at all that maybe like he, uh, your spouse, is uh, in a different primary? Yeah, I mean, that's that's always the risk, right? But that's any relationship. Polyamory is just as complicated as monogamy. Your partner can't always leave you. You can be together for 30 years and your partner leave you. You know, it, it, it just depends on what the thing is going to be the trigger. Um, in, in, in my grandmother's age, you stayed married and you took.
you took the shit, right? Um, but her husband ended up leaving. It turned out he had a whole other family simultaneously that lived like three blocks away. He just switched one wife for the other. But she never married again because she felt she was raised, you get one marriage, and then that's it. So she spent the next 50 years of her life, 40 years of her life without a partner. In my case, it's been a huge part of my fear when we were when we were first working it out because because of the kind of partners that he prefers. And, um, and so it started to be on the table for me. It didn't used to be on the table for me for us to break up. But when I realized like, you know what, there are things I can't offer him that he is interested in, he may choose somebody else. If that happens, obviously it will be devastating and everything like that. But it could happen if we, if there's no partner. We could just decide that we don't get along anymore or that we're incompatible and it's time to be done. It was a great 18-year run. Let's move on with our lives, you know. So I, I know that that's a big part of people's concerns about poly, but I always try to put it like monogamy. You guys are doing it to yourselves too. <laughs> I think it's the same. It's really the same. It's only that there's an extra person or people around. That's really the only difference. So I'm curious about whether in terms of ethnicity, is there greater or lesser acceptance of the orientation and quantity of polyamory bisexual in any of the communities that you belong to? So I I don't, I can't speak well about like the full white folks because their thing is so weird for me that I don't understand it. In the black side, there is way more bisexuality than I ever realized. We are so secretive about our stuff. I mean, we are so secretive about it. So so in these safe spaces, these black poly safe spaces where people come out, you realize that most of the men were bisexual in those groups. And I would have never thought it because I didn't know many bisexual men until I got into poly. Um, women, I feel like I have met women who claim bisexuality or pansexuality and are just flat out straight, but curious. So my ex is one of those. She claimed bisexuality. She came involved she, and, and she, you know, she was a team player sometimes. But you could tell it wasn't genuine for her. It, she's curious. She wants to try everything. But when it really came down to it, it was more of a in, in public, she would want to perform, you know, we're gay together type of thing. But in private, it was a lot harder for her. And that's when I realized, oh, like she had a totally different orientation than she thought. But yeah, and on the uh, what I can talk about on the black and poly side, it's it's pretty heavy bisexual male and female. Um, oh, and I also do go by bisexual versus pan because I am very gendered in my attraction. The parts don't matter, but the masculine presenting and feminine presenting matter. So I like women that are feminine. I like men that are masculine. It can be a man that still has a vagina. It could be a woman that has a penis. The parts don't matter. The presentation for me matters. And like the behaviors, if it's like more masculine behavior and feminine behavior, depending on the gender. So like I stay bisexual. I've been criticized about that from a number of people because especially now that we are talking more about trans and intersex um for me like accent the trans part is it it, it can i can date trans i'm totally comfortable doing that but i like a masculine presenting male and a feminine presenting woman um i'm not attracted to androgyny and that's where i get a lot of criticism because i have a few androgynous friends you know attraction is you can't control your attraction androgyny um so androgynous is sort of like a non non masculine non feminine but kind of in the middle i guess um <laughs> It almost always looks a little bit more masculine to me than than feminine, but but that's my experience from the friends of mine that um, are androgynous. Uh, let's see, what would be an example of an, a person that she calls her? 
Yeah, Marlena Dietrich. She was a, a screen, like a, a screen. Or George. Yeah. Bowie could kind of maybe go. So, so it's like you know, there could be a cross-dressing element, or there could be something like that. But it's just kind of like a. What was your example? Prince. Yeah, Prince is perfect. You know, he's because because has anybody ever questioned Prince's masculinity? Even though he's walking around in flousy little velvety things and stuff like that, he was man as fuck. But he had this androgynous thing going on. Um, there's a there's an actress on um, Black uh, Orange is the New Black that she. she <laughs> No, no, it's one of the white ones with the dark, with the shaved oh, black hair. She, not boo, the skin, one of the skinnier kind of white supremacy ones. She is out of the closet as, if not androgynous, intersexed. Or she's controversial. It's not the ruby red girl. It's, it's the man. I, I'll have to think about it. But she, she's part of the like the white percent, the white supremacy group of that show, and she has a shave of like a buzzed black black hair. Um, yeah, she's the white supremacist. Yeah, so she is out as a non-binary person, which is along the lines of androgyny. There, you know, it just depends on the way you're comfortable and saying it, and specific like little things like that. So that's a very bitter battleground between bi and pan. Yeah, and that comes up in my LGBT studies classes all the time, and that's a very bitter battleground between the two. They push against yeah. each other to define themselves. And the thing is, like, I'm I'm cool with a pan. I can date a pan person. I feel fine with that that kind of um, identification. I'm, I'm really fine with almost any identification, but for me, I have that gendered thing. Um, I'm not a person that doesn't think a trans person is a man or a woman, depending on um, not their assignment, but their what they tell you they are, you know. But yeah, for, for pan people, they feel that it is more welcoming to go by pan and to, you know, they take all type of thing. And for me, I'm fine with the... It's not close. I don't even think of it as close. I still think of it as a very open way uh, to be sexual, but it's. Uh, but for me, it's, there's a gender. Gender is associated with my sexuality. Then, then maybe pan people probably experience. You had some. Uh, yes. Has your atheism ever been an issue with your family, friends, or relationship? Almost all my mom's side of the family is atheist, except for my mother. She became a, a Baptist at some point, but she's like a Sunday Saint type. Really, she goes to church so that she can wear the same color suit as her boyfriend. <laughs> um, but my um, um, but my dad's my dad was like a drug dealer going while I was growing up and he was an abusive dude but then he became a born again and he became very abusive like I'll take drug dealer daddy over a born again daddy any day um, he used God as a way of validating his punishment in a way that when he was just an abusive drug dealer dad it just didn't go that way. Like there was a different level of control that was involved in that. A lot of people will say that that's the reason why I'm an atheist, but I was an atheist well before he got hardcore into the church. Like it was, it was just that I didn't have a term for it. I just knew that I didn't believe in God. Um, with my in-laws though, it's very problematic. Uh, his mother and sister are really hardcore. Um, they think we're depressed and miserable because we don't have God. I'm like, I'm depressed and miserable because... <laughs> But um, you know, it has nothing to do with a deity or an absence of a deity in my life. So yeah, there's a problem. Like you know, at our wedding, we had to tell everybody 
Because my mother-in-law invited all these little church ladies who had never seen me. I walked down the aisle with Jungle Boogie by Cool and the Gang. These white ladies didn't know what happened to them. Even my brother, do you remember how depressed my brother was? My brother is like an emo sad kid, like a punk rock kid. And he just, he wasn't into R&B or hip hop. And he just, his hand was like this the whole time. He was walking me down the aisle. Um, but yeah, like we told, we had to tell people because all these little church ladies came like, this is not a place for church. Um, there was church, but there wasn't church, which is only clear to part. Of this because I don't divorce them from each other I couldn't really answer that question I would I would say that um, our I would say that people are more offended by us being poly because it's either that my husband tricked me into it or I'm a slut that tricks him into it um, he usually gets congratulated. I usually get demonized for it. And when we did try like online platforms and stuff like that, I would get up messages about how much of a slut I was, which is weird because I don't I don't engage nearly as much. I talk about Polly way more than I Polly <laughs> uh, because people bother me and I don't I don't like people that much. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I would I would say like for me, if someone did kind of approach me and they tried to go one way or the other, like they're linked to me. It's it's legitimately hyphenate for me. But but yeah, like as a couple, we get it, it we get frowned upon for being poly often. It usually means that we're selfish or that we're too distracted and we can't focus or that we really don't love each other, but we're trying to share the bills together or something like that. You get all kinds of, of things. Yeah. Um, is there anything about any of your identities that you wish people knew or like a, a thing that people think, but it's not true? Does that make sense? With any of your Yeah, I, I'm a person, like, I want visibility. I think a lot of us do in terms of our things. You, you want to walk down the street and be seen for what you are and, and not in the way that someone perceives. Like, you you know, if we're black, we don't want to be perceived as thugs all the time. If we're, you know, if we're a, a white gay male, you don't want to necessarily be considered effeminate or, or, or whatever unless you are, you know, that kind of stuff. Like, we have a bunch of these things. So for me, with my identities, I want to be seen, but there's no fucking way you're going to figure me out. Like, by looking at me, you can't tell what race I am. I'm, I'm actually, ra- I, I claim mixed race, but I'm actually raceless because you can't put me in, I'm, I've got a bunch of ethnicity, but you can't put me in a race category. I'm not white, I'm not black, I'm not yellow, I'm not brown, I'm not yellow, you know, that kind of stuff. So for me, I would, I would wish that I could get visibility. I wish I could walk down the street and just be black sometimes. I wish I could walk down the street and be bisexual without someone telling me that because I have a husband, I'm not a real bisexual. I wish I could walk down the street as an atheist and not be told that I'm depressed because I don't have God. You know, things like that. Would I choose to, to have a different identity or, or to kind of like sandwich them into one? No, I'm out here living my intersectional ass life. And I, you know, I hope that other people get that opportunity too, because it took me a long time to feel grounded about my, I'm grounded and fluid at the same time. I know that it's going to change at some point. Something else is going to hit. I might, I might go 20 years without having a poly relationship, but still identify as poly and maybe I decide to take it off or whatever. So I won't change that kind of stuff. I wouldn't want to change that. But I would just like one time to walk down the street and someone look at me and be like, hey, you must be a black Japanese, Irish, English, German, black, Seminole, Native, you know. <laughs> I wish I could have something like that. So what excited me most about your presentation, I think we're coming back and you were going to present here on this topic with all of those different titles, is as you know, um, my first two kids I adopted, the eldest one is Mexican, Mestizo, French, English, and German. And the second one, Micah, 
is a trans man whose father was African-American and mother was Caucasian, though I don't think she's from the Caucasus Mountains. Uh, but Micah comes home to the white dad and yeah. very often just in anger asks me, has anyone ever asked you what you are? And yeah. my answer is no one has ever asked me what I am. Right. And then I've seen him go off on someone and scream, I don't know anything about fucking Lumbia. I don't know what it is because he's always red. He's ambiguous, yeah. So Mike... So, you know, so your story being visible, mm-hmm. I think it is really, really important. It's a different story that people, I think, can relate to. Yeah. And that can help them navigate through their own life. With Micah, too, specifically, like, I wish I had been able to stay around longer because in the beginning... When he was like three or whatever, and he would ask me those questions about like, will he look like me one day and things like that. Um, You know, I knew that like I had to be a mixed presence because the likelihood you were going to be able to expose him to a mixed upbringing was going to be difficult. And then I moved, but I always thought about it. I was like, man, I wish I wish I could have been a mixed presence for, for Micah more and more. Um, we, uh, as Johnny mentioned, Micah is trans, and when Micah was little, was very curious about my breasts. Would I get breasts when I grow up? Will I be? Will I look like you? A lot of questions about will he look like me and will he have breasts like me? And it was really a, a point that I just wish I could have been a presence for for that part because I think even now, as ambiguous as he looks to the outsiders, he probably doesn't even have a mixed race experience. Like not in the same way that I do, where I know all sides. Well, and more and more studies that are coming out about kids who are mixed and that white parent don't know how to talk about race to their children. And yeah. All of that stuff puts me on high alert. I have an I episode about that. Right? What's that? I have an episode about that. Oh, that's fantastic. You'll have to tell me which one it is. Yeah. Micah told me to tell you hello about it. Oh, hello. Um, yeah, so this is a thing that comes up on my show a lot, my mixed race show. Um, parenting, parenting mixed kids, especially if the parent or one of the parents is white and they have a black child. White people who have black children, go to a black hairstylist and get that kid's hair taken care of. Learn how to learn how to comb, learn how to condition, all that stuff. White people, I'm sorry, but they are disastrous at raising mixed kids. I used to do Micah's hair in like six or seven different braids and called my aunt, my aunt, I sent her a picture and she said, don't do Micah's hair like that. It makes him look Oh gosh, a whisper. A whisper. Do you know how often I get a whisper? So you're black Japanese. Oh gosh. Do you get that really? All the time. All the time. I I don't literally never go outside of my house a day that someone doesn't ask me where I'm from or what I am. Every day. I I would remember a day that I don't get asked that question. I would really remember a day. In the back you. What is the name of your podcast? Militantly mixed. Actually I have three. I have militantly mixed, which is the one that we're talking about this is my um, and then I have Blurred Comics I'm also a comic book geek and it's a co-hosted show with my other mixed black friend we're both we talk about comics through the mixed race lens because comic books are weird for mixed people it's the place we get seen X-Men X-Men if you have a mixed race kid make that kid read X-Men books because it makes them feel normal it really really does so we talk about that on that show and then I produce Black Radical Queer which is about blackness and radicalness and queerness and it's awesome that's a really good show. I'm not on that show. I'm just a fan of that show. I produce it. Can you repeat the comic book? Uh, blurred, as in black nerd, com, mixed, M-I-X. 
And so we actually are, um, we transitioned from another show that used to be called Militantly Mixed, the Black as Fuck edition, because we talked about being black as fuck even though we were mixed. Um, and then we transitioned over to the comic books things because we almost always ended up being depressed after an episode. And then we wanted to talk about comics. So, yep. I think that's, yeah. I think we're hitting that spot. So, yeah, if you're, if you're interested afterwards, you can chat with me. Um, or if you want to learn more about my shows or whatever, I can show you my social media stuff. Mix is a main hustle media podcast produced and hosted by me, Charmaine Johnson. Music is by David Bogan, the one. And if you like what you heard on Militantly Mix, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes and wherever you find your podcasts. Main Hustle Media. Turn your side hustle into your main hustle.